you turn with me for some background reading to Deuteronomy chapter 15, then we will return to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy 6 calls us to give, the rich to give to those who are in need. I'd like to read from Deuteronomy 15, some words about that beginning at verse 7 through verse 11. In Deuteronomy 15, as the Lord God is teaching his people how to live together as his people, entering the promised land, to dwell there together as the people of the Lord, he tells them, Deuteronomy 15, verse 7, the word of the Lord, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother." But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he lacks. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him. And your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. Then if you turn to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Beginning at verse 1, we're looking at verses 17 through 19 in particular, but I'd like to read the whole chapter because the apostle has spoken words about money earlier in the chapter. So let's read it. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have been, excuse me, and those who have believing masters, Let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, 
for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And here's our text, verse 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. God's word. Let us bow and ask for his blessing, shall we? <clears throat> Our blessed God, who has caused the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, we pray that you would grant us such faith in the truth of your Holy Word that we would be partakers of your everlasting promises through Jesus Christ our Lord. Dispose our minds to receive with meekness every doctrine that you've revealed and save us from that spiritual blindness and ignorance that naturally fills our minds. Teach us to know you, our God, to adore you for your greatness, to admire you for your holiness, and give us grace to believe the warnings of your word and to be fed by the promises of it in Jesus Christ. In his name we ask that you would help us now. Amen. Congregation of Christ Jesus in the gospel, you recall that a rich young man comes to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. And when he attests that he has kept God's commandments from his youth, and Jesus says, one thing you still lack, go sell all you have, give to the poor, follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the young man turns sad, and he goes away. And Jesus turns to those who are with him, and he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples of Christ are astonished and they say, who then can be saved? Maybe they harbored the conceit of thinking that, that the rich were especially close to God. Their wealth was the testimony that they were blessed of God. If they can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus replied, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the only one who can save. He's the only one who can save the poor, and he's the only one who can save the rich. And how does God do that? He does it by his spirit and word. And as we look at these verses from 1 Timothy this morning, we could ask ourselves, I wonder how many people have been saved by the three verses that we look at this morning. I wonder how many rich people have been delivered by hell and brought into the kingdom of Christ have been sustained in the faith by these verses. What is impossible for men is possible with God. God the Almighty saves by his word. And so it's a gracious thing that God has written these words in his book for our learning that he, by his word, may impart to us salvation. Let's look tonight or this morning as the Lord gives us counsel for the rich. And he shows us, first of all, the constant danger. And then he points to us the Christ-like duty. And then he calls us to contemplate our eternal delight, eternal life. So let's look at these three points, the constant danger, the Christ-like duty, and the contemplated delight. There's two paragraphs, as I mentioned, about money or riches in 1 Timothy 6. The first one was directed to those who want to become rich, right? They could even be the poor, right? They want to be rich. And now this paragraph at the end of the letter is written to those who are rich, to those who are rich. Now we recognize that poverty and riches are relative terms and evaluations, aren't they? They, I mean, there's a sense in which every one of us is rich, right? If you live in the United States of America, by, 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 by the standards of many places in the world, you are rich, and yet within each culture, there are some who have more than others who are recognized as the rich, and there are some who have less who are recognized as the poor. But there are dangers that attend to riches. Two great dangers, the Apostle Paul tells us. The one is pride, and the other one is false security. He says at verse 17, Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty. Pride is a plague that often is attached to the rich. Riches invite people to feel quite important, quite self-important, quite like they have arrived, that they're better than others, that they're smarter or wiser or more blessed than other people. I've done something good. I'm someone special, and I look down, therefore, upon others. Those with riches often boast out loud or in their minds and hearts of what they have, of what they've done, of who they are. At times they are standoffish, existing in cliques, because they associate now with a certain group who can go to the certain kinds of restaurants or take the certain kinds of vacations. They, they live at a different level, and therefore they find it sometimes easy to despise those who are not rich. Sometimes even in the church of Jesus Christ, those who have wealth set themselves above others. They expect that their words should have more influence and, and be counted more important than the wishes of others because they're wealthy. Many times relationships are found to deteriorate when wealth enters the scene. How many relationships and families or marriages or among friends break down when one of the parties becomes wealthy and now begins to look down with a haughty heart upon the other. 
But the other danger that's warned against here is a false security. Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Money also leads us at times to feel like we don't need the Lord. Jesus, or rather, well, Jesus, through Moses, warned the Israelites, when you come into the land of plenty God's giving you with all these homes already built and vineyards established, don't forget God. Don't think that you've gotten this for yourself. Money tends to make us feel that way, doesn't it? That we are secure. We're quite aware that it's harder to pray when when we are richly blessed and things seem to be going well than it is when we are desperately in need. It's in times of great need that we, we cry out with a true and urgent sense of our need. But it's in times of prosperity that sometimes we forget even to pray. But the Lord God pulls the legs out from beneath our wealth when he says, command those who are rich in this present age, in this now age. And God puts it in perspective that if you have earthly riches, you have riches for a little, little sliver of time in terms of the expanse of eternity just for this present age. That's yours for a few hours. Even where God in his great love and mercy has heaped up riches upon Abraham or upon Job, they couldn't take it with them when they died, right? That's what the apostle had taught earlier in this chapter. Jesus warned that earthly treasures stored up upon the earth, it evaporates, right? It's destroyed by moths or rust or thieves carry it off. It doesn't have any natural security. Riches are deceitful. And Christ loves us enough that by his word, he, he warns us as his people that riches are deceitful. Don't. Don't think you're immune or exempt from being deceived by riches. You must take pains to guard yourself. The man of God must learn that riches upon earth are temporary. You hold them in your hand, but they, like sand, are running between your fingers. You can't hold on. It doesn't take much to lose riches. A lawsuit, a medical bill, a a needy loved one, an uninsured driver, a failed business venture. It would be foolish to build your hope upon riches that you cannot guarantee and that themselves guarantee nothing. Just think of the economic crises that have occurred in the past century, the Great Depression, or in more recent memory, the 2008 financial crisis, and now the inflation that's going on. These are reminders, aren't they, that riches are uncertain, as the Holy Spirit tells us. The Spirit tells us in Proverbs 23 Don't overwork to be rich because of your own understanding. Cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. It's a good picture to keep in our minds, isn't it, of riches. They have wings. Our family enjoys birds a little bit. And my wife or children will often look out the window and see a bird and call the rest of the family to come look at this bird. But 
I've learned that you never know if the bird's still going to be there when you get to the window because sometimes they just up and fly away. And the person's left trying to describe what they saw. Bird is gone. And this is the picture of our wealth. We, we pile it up and we take great pleasure and it gives us great security. But we don't see its sprouting wings and it might soon fly away. Many have gone to bed rich and woken up poor, as they say. Many have attained great wealth. But after attaining it, have come to discover they've lost their wife or they've lost their family or they lost their health or they're addicted to alcohol. Philip Reichen writes that in the year 1923, nine of the world's, I'm quoting him, in the year 1923, nine of the world's wealthiest men held a meeting at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago In attendance were the presidents of the world's largest steel, gas, and utility companies, the world's greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the presidential cabinet, a Wall Street tycoon, the head of the world's largest monopoly, and the president of the Bank of International Settlements. The men who met at the Edgewater that day knew all the secrets of generating and manipulating capital. They could own anything and everything that money could buy. There was one more thing they held in common, which is that within the next decade, they all lost everything they had. Of those nine men, he goes on to detail, of those nine men, every single one of them either died penniless, went insane, ended up in prison, or in the case of three of them, committed suicide. The wealthiest of men. Riches were hardly anything to build their lives upon. Not exactly the great security that riches promise. So we're being called by God's word to think properly. The Lord, by his spirit and word here, wants to to command our, our thoughts about money. Some of you know the name Francis Schaeffer, the pastor, theologian, philosopher, famous for founding Labrie Fellowship. This past week, I pulled off my shelf his book, How Should We Then Live?, which is subtitled The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. And so Schaeffer traces the movement of history and the movement of culture. But his study begins. These are the first words in his book. He writes, there is a flow to history and culture. This flow is rooted and has its wellspring in the thoughts of people. People are unique in the inner life of the mind. What they are in their thought world determines how they act. The results of their thought world flow through their fingers or from their tongues into the external world. This is true of Michelangelo's chisel and it is true of a dictator's sword. Maybe that seems obvious. But is it? Do we recognize that that our presuppositions, our worldview, determine how we behave, how we act? Our culture is not just happening around us, but what's going on in our culture is the external activity of the internal thoughts of man's heart. As a man thinketh, so he is. Schaefer writes, an individual is not just the product of the forces around him, he has a mind, an inner world. As Schaefer begins his study with ancient Rome, 
he traces ancient Roman culture and comes to claim that, quote, apathy was the chief mark of the late empire, that Rome fell because of apathy, indifference. People didn't care anymore. And then he, as an illustration, notes the apathy that is evident in the artwork of the era. Noting how even sculptures were of inferior quality what came decades or centuries before. Music was not of the quality it had been before. There was in Rome this apathy that set in. Now what does all this have to do with our text? Well, it reminds us that as we think about money, so we will behave with regard to our money. It makes all the difference in our world, our inner thought life. Our inner thought life. What we think determines how we act. Too often we think that our lives are just the the sum total of so many circumstances around us and so many providences and so forth. And we recognize, of course, that God is supreme and sovereign over everything. But God doesn't deal with us as robots and stocks and blocks of wood. He uses our thoughts and our hearts. Schaefer writes, people are apt to look at the outer theater of action, forgetting the actor who lives in the mind and who therefore is the true actor in the external world. The inner thought world determines the outward action. It's a different way to look at history, isn't it? To see the inner thought life that has determined the action. But it's, it's a different way to look at your own life, isn't it? What is going on in my mind with regard to money and possessions? Not what do I tell people, not what do I say, not what right words do I pray when I'm thinking about what I should be praying, but what is my inner thought life with respect to riches? Because that's actually determining my life. Is there a haughtiness looking down on others? Is there a self-sufficiency that I've got what I need? I don't call upon God. Paul had earlier warned back in verses 9 and 10, but, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know, to read a litany of nine of the world's richest men who end up in prison, insane, penniless, or committing suicide is to see people pierced through with sorrows. We must take God's word seriously. We must ask, am I aware of the dangers? We must ask that if we're considered wealthy, we must ask that if we don't consider ourselves wealthy, because as I said before, we are all, in some sense, quite wealthy. Well, the constant danger is not the only thing here in our text. The Lord leads us from danger to duty. Let's look at the Christ-like duty If there are two dangers listed here, there's also two duties listed here. And the first one is this, to trust in God. Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
What a beautiful description of our God. He, he gives us richly all things to enjoy. That's how we have to look at the gifts of creation. God is not a stingy God. He's a, he's a God who's created a world of plenty, right? Our Savior pointed our eyes to the beautifully arrayed flowers that come in all kinds of varieties of colors and textures and schemes. Christ pointed to the, the bounty of food. God feeds the birds of the air. And the food that we eat comes in all kinds of flavors and textures. Just look at a basket of fruit sometimes. Cut up those fruit. Take a, take a moment to recognize the wide variety of just what you have maybe in your house. Why didn't God just create a black and white world? Well, the answer is because God's not like that. God overflows with goodness. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Well, what does that mean? It, it means that the antidote to materialism is not asceticism. The antidote to, to loving riches and trusting in wealth is not to take it all and bury it at the bottom of the ocean and say, bad stuff. That's not the antidote. It's not the way to fix a trust in money. The Apostle Paul had already warned against that kind of asceticism earlier in this book when he warned against those who were rejecting the good gifts of God's creation and who said, you shouldn't marry. You shouldn't eat certain foods. The Apostle said, no, that's not the way. God, in his kindness, overflows, often giving far beyond our necessities. But this is the key. As we receive from the bountiful hand of God his riches, we are not to worship the riches, but we are to lift our eyes to the great giver of these gifts and trust in him, in the living God. He is the real deal. He is the enduring. He is the permanent. He is the eternal. Wealth is not living. It has no life in it. Remember the gold in Solomon's temple? The Babylonians stripped it and carried it off to Babylon. Wealth could not even protect itself. It certainly won't save us. But God gives. So Christ tells us to seek first the kingdom. And all these things that you need and tend to worry about, God will give you. He'll give you whatever you need for the purpose of your life upon earth. So we're to depend on the blessing of the Lord. We live not by bread alone, but by the, the word of blessing that proceeds from the mouth of our God. And Christ set us that example, even before eating and breaking bread, he'd lift up his eyes to heaven and pray to the Father, because we don't live by this bread alone. So the one duty is to trust in God. Are you doing that? Are you learning that? Are we more and more seeking to be those who trust in God? That we learn to depend upon him. We learn to ask daily for our daily bread. That we give him thanks for all his goodness towards us. That we pray for grace to cast out the haughty spirit and to put our trust not in ourselves but in the Lord. But the second duty here is to be rich in good works. Rich in good works. Verse 18, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Let the rich add to their riches the riches of good works. It's not just the Romans who became apathetic. We, 
We live in an apathetic culture. I mean, we, we have a ton of people who don't want to work anymore. Right? But what about us as, as believers? Have we, have we forgotten how to labor, how to serve others? We all know about the wealthy aristocracies of history who live very busy lives of socializing with other people who lived equally busy lives of doing nothing but talking to other people who are equally busy doing nothing. What about Christians? Do we give? Do we work? Do we serve? It's a sad sight when somebody becomes so wealthy that all their time is taken up with trying to figure out how to spend their wealth or how to boast about their wealth or how to make use of all the toys they've accumulated. They don't have time to go on the yacht. Then we've abandoned our purpose for being upon the earth. And that's a very undignified thing. If you've lost your purpose for being upon earth, it doesn't matter how many yachts you have. If you have lost your reason for having been created, you are an undignified creature. Our glory is to work. The Father has been working till now, and I have been working, Christ says. The apostle says we are to be ready to give and willing to share. God's a generous giver, so he says to his children, imitate me. Christ is a generous Savior. The apostle writes in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It is the precious blood of Christ alone that saves us from a life of idolatry. And we ought never to think, Hopefully it's not crossing our mind even now. We ought never to think that, that in my wisdom I've delivered myself from slavery to stuff. You know, there are books written by unbelievers and there are YouTube videos by unbelievers who are very financially successful who will tell you riches are not everything. You know, live a balanced life. Take care of your family. But, you know, that's nothing new. Philosophers from the ancient world could stand back and say, yeah, I see people die. Riches must not be everything. But you know what? No one has been delivered from slavery to riches by a few words of human wisdom or by a library of human wisdom. We are all by nature slaves of sin and slaves of the devil, and there is no escaping the haughtiness and self-sufficiency except through Jesus Christ. you believe that? Or do you believe this morning that if you just watch a few episodes about tiny houses, that you're going to be delivered from stuff, materialism? It's the gospel that delivers. God's own son, the infinitely rich one, giving up the glories of heaven to be born in a stable, to die naked on a cross, to have the covenant curse laid upon him for all of our idolatries. It's the gospel that delivers us. The word the apostle is proclaiming here is is the word of the gospel. This is a word for Christians, for those who know the power of the gospel in their lives. There's no person who can set himself free by his own strength. 
And when the apostle in 2 Corinthians 8 says that you know the grace of Christ, though he was rich, he became poor for your sakes, he's saying that in 2 Corinthians 8 as the motivation for giving. He wants the, the, the saints in Corinth to finish the collection for Jerusalem, the needy saints back in Jerusalem. And so he's stirring them up by saying, you know the grace. He was rich to make you poor that you could be, or to be poor to be, you might be rich. And now you have riches and you ought to give them to the saints in Jerusalem. Second Corinthians 8, he calls us to give, just as here in our text, willingly, readily, cheerfully. Attitude is everything, right? God cares not just that we give, but how we give. And that's a good reminder for all of us, no matter how rich or poor. We had an installation of office bears recently. And we often, on those occasions, end up looking at scripture texts about elders, but, but there's words that need to be said with regard to, to deacons and our duties toward them. I think in seminary, I think there was a professor who said that we're supposed to preach about giving at least once a year because it's only fair to the deacons. They're supposed to gather gifts that God's people should be urged to give. And so knowing we were coming to this text, I told myself I would take this occasion to say something about that. So let me remind you. What we heard read in the installation form, provide the deacons generously with the necessary gifts for the needy, remembering that in so much as you do it to the least of these his children, you do it to him. It's our calling. Deacons also are calling to gather the gifts, distribute them with the words of cheer from the scripture. And deacons, when they, when they ask for giving, they should never feel like, like they're asking too much of God's people, as if it's a burden they lay upon the people. No, it's, it's our Lord God who lays this upon us. And deacons should never think to themselves that, that though there's a bunch of needs, they're not going to bother God's people. They've asked too much already. No, it's the Lord who supplies us so that we can give. We have so much to be thankful for, don't we, in terms of congregational giving. As was noted at the congregational meeting, we've been able, by God's grace, to support a variety of causes and willing and generous hearts. And we should pray the Lord to continue that mercy to us. And we can also, though, each one of us ask ourselves, not just is the congregation being generous, but, but am I being generous? I may not simply hide beneath the congregation's giving, but what about me personally before the face of God? Am I giving in proportion to how God has blessed me? John Calvin writes, The lawful use of riches is, the richer any man is, the more abundant are his means of doing good to others. To whom much is given, much is required. The needs of our congregation are set before us to care for, but also the needs beyond the congregation, even the needs beyond this country, when we think of the proportion of wealth that we have in this land and our needy brothers and sisters around the world. Open your hand wide, willingly lend, says Deuteronomy 15. So we've seen the constant danger and the Christ-like duty, but finally this morning, the contemplated delight The doing of those duties leads to verse 19, 
that by doing them, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. What a wonderful motivation. Not to live for money, but to be eager and willing to do good and to share. By freely giving of oneself and one's money, Jesus says you're storing up treasure in heaven. He told that rich young man, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And so giving and sharing is actually an investment. You can't take your riches with you, but you can send them on ahead if you bring them to the currency exchange. I was talking to one of our young men who's going off to college, and he was saying he couldn't take everything with him because he's flying on an airplane, but he can send stuff ahead. We were talking about ordering stuff from Amazon and sending it ahead, and it, it brought to my mind the mailroom when I was in college because the individual who worked in the mailroom was not known for being overly happy to see the college students who were lined up a bit giddy at the mail window because they'd gotten a package slip, meaning there were cookies from home or something, and with excitement, wishing she would hurry up, and she, in this little box of a room with too many packages, was never so excited to see us. But I got to thinking about Amazon and how it must have changed the mailrooms. I can't imagine now, with the way people order, the way we all order packages from Amazon, what a college mailer must look like. They must have had to build new buildings. But you know what? There's no storage issue in heaven. You can send it all on ahead by giving away, by caring for the needy, by supporting the cause of Christ upon earth. You exchange the one currency for the eternal reward. And what does it look like in heaven? What does the mailroom look like in heaven? Jesus Christ is not grumpy. But the Savior delights in his people who have found the greater joy of giving. And isn't he glad from heaven to give us the grace to want to do that? Now the apostle says that by doing this we... We store up for ourselves a good foundation. And he certainly isn't saying that, that the foundation of eternal life is, is the works we have done. It's not that we merit eternal life or our works are a basis for God's pardon and favor. It's that God accepts us in Christ Jesus. And now, as we say in the Belgic, he crowns his gifts in us. That's what rewards are. They're, they're the rewards of grace by which God crowns his gifts, even the gift of giving in us. And what does it mean then that we lay hold of, of eternal life, and that we have this foundation? William Hendrickson in his commentary writes, and the consciousness of having enjoyed this heavenly treasure will be a firm foundation for the expectation of everything good on the day of judgment. That reminded me of what Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Isn't it true that as we, as we look to heaven, as we put our treasure there, that our heart is there and we long all the more for heaven and look to Christ's coming? And so it is that the grace of sharing is not just a calling, but the grace of sharing is actually, in its own way, the antidote to materialism and trust in riches. How does a young boy who loves his bicycle too much stop loving his bicycle? Well, one of the ways is that he gets a little older and starts longing for a car or truck. If our hearts are in heaven, if our hearts are in heaven, It liberates us, doesn't it, from an undue attachment to the things of earth. We are called, Timothy was called earlier, to lay hold on eternal life, to take a firm grip on eternal life. And now the rich are being called to lay hold on eternal life. Again, it's not by our works that we are earning eternal life, but it is along the path of imitating our Savior, who was so rich and made himself so poor to make us rich. It's along this path that we, by faith, are taking hold on eternal life. Are you responding to the wealth God has given you in a way that is increasing your grip on eternal life? or lessening your appreciation for it. What a blessing it is to enjoy the gifts God gives, but the greatest enjoyment is to use them in the service of our Master, whose face we will soon see. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which saves us. We acknowledge we need saving. We swim, Lord, in an ocean of materialism. We live in a culture that has counted possessions as gods. We are more affected than we even know. And you have given to us great wealth for which we are responsible and accountable to you. And we pray for your saving grace in our lives, even as we thank you for what you've already done. For you, Lord, have granted us much joy in sharing. You've taught us to hunger for your righteousness and to long to see the face of our coming Savior. You've given us opportunity and pleasure supporting your causes and your people. And you've given to us many examples of generous hearts. We thank you most of all for our Lord Jesus Christ, who has not only given us an example, but by his saving death has purchased us a pardon and the power of the Holy Spirit. May he fill our hearts, give us repentance where we have sinned, give us forgiveness, and give us the power of a new life through Christ our Lord. Amen.